means to summon us. Explorers in the further regions of experience. Demons to some, angels to others. You solved the box. We came. Now you must come with us. Taste our treasures. Tears, please. It's a waste of good suffering. Jehovah, go break God! He escaped you! Nobody escapes us. He did, I see him, I see him! I can bring you to hell, and you, you can make him back now, I want to hear him confess himself. Then, maybe, maybe. Hey guys, I'm Chris. Hey everybody, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers. And in the month of February, we only like to cover the most romantic of horror films. So of course, this month we're talking about BDSM. Mm-hmm. And Hellraiser. With Hellraiser. <laughs> <laughs> A film so scrumptious in its romance, it just rips at the flesh. Hellraiser is a 1987 British supernatural horror film written and directed by Clive Barker himself in his directorial debut. The film is based on Barker's 1986 novella, The Hellbound Heart, and its plot focuses on a mystical puzzle box which summons the Cenobites, a group of extra-dimensional sadomasochistic beings who do not differentiate between pain and pleasure. Hmm. The film stars Andrew Robinson, Claire Higgins, Sean Chapman, Ashley Lawrence as Final Girl Christy, and Doug Bradley as the lead Cenobite eventually known as Pinhead. The score was composed by Christopher Young, who replaced the electronic music group Coil, who the director had handpicked. Some of their original themes were reworked by Young into his new score. Barker had been dismayed at prior adaptions of his work and wanted to helm one for himself. Producer Christopher Figg agreed to produce his screenplay, and New World Pictures agreed to fund. It was clear on set that it was Barker's first time behind the camera. (laughs) Okay, listeners. We have such sights to show you. This is Hellraiser. I have seen the future of horror. His name is Clive Barker. Unlike anything you have witnessed. 
holy is unleashed. Sexual deviant Frank Cotton, played by Sean Chapman, has grown tired of the pleasures of Earth, having experienced all that he can in the world he knows. He tracks down a mysterious puzzle box that's said to open a gateway to a realm of otherworldly pleasures. He takes the box to his old family home and attempts to sweatily solve it in the attic. Once he does, hooked chains appear and rip into his flesh. A black-robed figure with pins driven into his head, known as Pinhead, played by Doug Bradley, returns the box to its original state and the room returns to normal. Or does it? Sometime later, Frank's brother Larry, played by Andrew Robinson, and his second wife, Julia, played by Claire Higgins, move into the deserted home. Larry's daughter, Kirsty, played by Ashley Lawrence, has decided to live on her own. She gets a job, but keeps having encounters with a strange, vagrant man. During the move-in, Larry and Julia find that Frank must have been there at some point. Julia daydreams about the time she first met Frank, and they boned. She has since become obsessed with him, as he gave her the best dick she's ever had. While moving a mattress into the house, Larry cuts his hand on a rusty nail protruding from the wall and runs upstairs to the attic, where Julia is still thinking about that dick. (laughs) His blood falls onto the floor and pools into a desiccated heart below the floorboards. While Julia rushes Larry to the hospital for stitches, Frank is resurrected as a skinless corpse, played by Oliver Smith whom Julia discovers upon their return. Frank explains to Julia that he had exhausted all earthly sensory experiences and tells her all about the puzzle box. He explains that, when he solved the puzzle, beings called Cenobites were unleashed to subject him to the extremes of sadomasochism and skin loss. Frank believes that Larry's blood is what brought him back, allowing him to escape the Cenobites. Super thirsty for his dick, Julia agrees to lure men to the house under the pretense of sex so Frank can drain their life force and regenerate his body. One day, Kirsty sees Julia leading a man into the house while her father's away. She follows inside and catches Frank feeding on his life force. He comes at her, but she grabs the puzzle box off the floor and throws it out the window, creating enough distraction for her to escape the house and grab the box. She passes out as she flees and wakes in a hospital. Kirsty solves the box, and four Cenobites are summoned. Pinhead, the apparent leader, tells her that they are seen as angels to some, demons to others, and they are explorers from another, darker dimension seeking carnal experiences, and they can no longer differentiate between pleasure and pain. They attempt to force Kirsty to come with them, but she convinces them to maybe spare her by getting Frank to confess to escaping them. They warn her against any trickery, though, or they'll tear her soul apart. (laughs) Kirsty returns to the house where Frank has killed her father, Larry, and assumed his identity by wearing his skin. Julia shows Kirsty Larry's flayed corpse, pretending it's Frank's. Julia leaves the attic, and the Cenobites appear. They're not fooled by this trick, and demand the man who committed the fling. 
Kirsty escapes, but is cornered by Frank and Julia. Frank reveals his true identity to Kirsty and comes on to her. Come to daddy. Come to daddy. <laughs> his advances are rejected, so he decides to drain her to complete his rejuvenation. Kirsty suddenly moves out of the way, causing Frank to stab Julia, draining her instead. Nothing personal. Frank chases Kirsty back to the attic and confesses to killing her father. After hearing this, the Cenobites reappear and ensnare him with their chains of fools. <laughs> chains, chains, chains. <laughs> they tear his body and soul apart as he recites the shortest Bible verse ever. Jesus wept. With Frank out of the picture, the Cenobites decide, why the fuck not, and try to take Kirsty to their BDSM paradise. But she's just not having it. She rips the puzzle box from Julia's cold, dead hands and unsolves it, banishing the Cenobites back to their sexy hell world, where every cast member from the Matrix wants their coats back. <laughs> Kirsty's boyfriend conveniently shows up, after she's done all the work, to save her. They escape the collapsing house, giant demon scorpion baby be damned. <laughs> what even is that? <laughs> Afterwards, Kirsty and her boyfriend throw the puzzle box in the middle of a fire they've set in an abandoned lot. But before it can burn, the stalker vagrant from earlier walks into the fire and picks it up. He transforms into a winged demon-like creature and flies away. The box ends up back into the hands of the merchant, who prepares to sell it to yet another horny deviant. What's your pleasure, sir? <laughs> the end. <laughs> Question mark. <laughs> Horny deviant. We'll tear the synopsis apart. <laughs> we have such synopses to read you. <laughs> Hellraiser was released in Great Britain on September the 10th, 1987, and was released in the U.S. eight days later, the same weekend as Fatal Attraction, another of our Valentine's deep dives. The film took in $5.6 million opening weekend, securing the number three spot at the box office. It would hold that spot the following week, but would fall down the list throughout October. It would eventually gross $14.6 million against a reported budget of $1 million. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's not a lot of money, but still compared to what it actually was made for. Yeah. Well, in 1987 money, I think that's pretty high yeah. for uh, an unfranchised horror film. Sure. Yeah. So. The film was initially banned in Ontario, Canada because of its brutal graphic violence with bloodletting throughout horror degradation and torture. New World Pictures was eventually able to cut 40 seconds of the film to secure that Canadian release, namely a scene of squirming rats nailed to a wall. Really? That's the scene they banned? I know. Out of all this movie, they're like, no, no, no rat torture. <laughs> Hellraiser was first given an X rating by the MPAA, and Barker had to cut several scenes to secure an R. These scenes included two and a half shots of the first hammer murder, including a shot of a hammer lodged in the victim's head. Oh, nice. The actor playing a different murder victim felt that he should be nude during the film <laughs> That nude murder was shot, but later replaced with a semi-clothed scene. Damn it. Right. And scenes of Frank being pulled apart by the Cenobite's hooks were shortened, and a scene of his head exploding was removed entirely. Yeah, but how short could you go? I mean, like, mm. you get it when yeah. it happens. I mean. Less is more. Yeah. 
Hellraiser holds a 72% on Rotten Tomatoes with an audience score of, well, 72%. The site's consensus reads, Elevated by writer-director Clive Barker's fiendishly unique vision, Hellraiser offers a disquieting and sadistically smart alternative to mindless gore. Kim Newman, writing for the Monthly Film Bulletin, noted that the most immediately striking aspect of the movie is its seriousness of tone. In an era when horror films, the Nightmare on Elm Street or Evil Dead films in particular, tend to be broadly comic. Newman stated that the film suffers from a few minor compromises, notably a decision made fairly late in shooting to change the specifically English setting for a more ambiguous and unbelievable mid-Atlantic one. Newman also noted that the Cenobites were well-used suggestive figures, but their monster companion is more blunderingly obvious concession to the gross-out tastes of the teenage drive-in audience. Newman concluded that the film was a return to the cutting edge of horror cinema, and that, in more gruesome moments, the film is a reminder of the grand guinal intensity that has recently tended to disintegrate into lazy splatter. My god, this person was paid by the word. <laughs> I mean, and I just can't be bothered with it, obviously. <laughs> Roger Ebert gave the film one half of a star out of four and deemed it as a dreary a piece of goods as has masqueraded as horror and many a long, cold night. Jesus. This is one of those movies you sit through with mounting dread as the fear grows inside you that it will indeed turn out to be feature length. <laughs> <laughs> and that this is a movie without wit, style, reason, and the true horror is that actors were made to portray and the technicians to realize its bankruptcy of imagination. Jesus. Fuck yeah. I mean, that's bullshit. Anyway, the New York Times said that the effects are not bad, only damp. <laughs> Don't know what that means, but... Jesus, Robert. Soggy. They're a little soggy. <laughs> well, get ready for the other movies. <laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> um, it does have some accolades, though. At the Saturn Awards, it was nominated for Best Horror Film, Best Music, and Best Makeup. The actual winner that year was The Lost Boys for Best Horror Movie, although it was a really good year for horror because they, had, they were up against Evil Dead 2, Near Dark, A Nightmare on Elm Street, 3, Dream Warriors, and Pumpkinhead. That's a... That's a- Really good amount of good horror movies. 1987 yeah. was a good year. And yeah, those are just the ones that were nominated. So Hellraiser was followed by nine sequels, most of which were direct video. Doug Bradley appeared as Pinhead in seven of them total. Yeah. So. Well, let's just get into it. Yes. We? Let's. Let's get into all the fucking sadomasochism of it all. Yeah. So I feel like this cast is pretty good pretty there you know starting you know led by i want to say claire higgins as of you know british meg foster yes british meg foster i do love her in this movie her eyes aren't quite as striking as meg foster's but she does do a good stand-in for like a cross between joan collins or Mm -hmm. joan crawford one of those jones (laughs) and meg foster yeah, when I was watching it this time around, I don't know that I've ever really noticed this before, but I was just like, oh my God, it's Meg Foster. It's British Meg Foster. <laughs> like, really? She uh, doesn't really come into her own, really, until like the second film, or at least the the, the last third of this one, I, I don't think. You know, she's she doesn't really have much to do here as far as like having her own agency in the first like part of this. She's yeah. really just like a slave to that D. For real, though. I mean, like she spends the greater part of this movie like pining after Dick. And, you know, she's willing to do some unspeakable things. But I don't think that she's that evil deep down. No, know? I think she was an opportunist because, uh, you know, she horny. Mm-hmm. But also she didn't catalyze any of this, right? No. It was Frank who did it, right? But it was actually her husband that she ended up cheating on that bled on the floor that did this, right? Mm-hmm. It was not a plan of hers. No, I mean, I mean, she was. Or if it was, we're not, we're not shown any information about that. 
No, I mean, I feel like, I mean, like she was seduced, obviously, you know, by by Frank and, um, you know, really acted on on that seduction and the memory of it. And I feel like by as the movie progresses, she may she may have gotten more into the murders or whatever. But I mean, for the first one, she really seems unsure of herself or whether or not she even can do this sort of thing. And I almost feel like I mean, I haven't read The Hellbound Heart, but I almost feel like she really is the main character here or should be. In a way, uh, because she she is kind of along for the ride in a way until she has to make that choice. But it, they really do take some care to set her up as unhappy. Yeah. Right. They've just moved to where we don't know is the UK is it the New England. We don't fucking right. know. There's a mistake in the script here. <laughs> I think they changed midway through filming where it was set, the, mm-hmm. what the setting was. So some of the lines don't really make sense, you know, but it, it does set it up very, very, very clearly that she is an unhappy and why she's unhappy. And we will talk about the Hellbound heart a little bit, you know, later on in this conversation, but you're right. I mean, like for the movie's sake, she, she is sort of the main character of this, right? Everything is happening around this character really. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's a good flashy role. I mean, I, I, I remember it, you know, and, and looking back over the other sequels that I've seen, I haven't seen all of them. I mean, I really enjoy like this, this basic story of her killing people to bring her lover back to life. Essentially. Like, I feel like it would have been really easy for her to chew the scenery or for them to have found an actress to do that. Like mm-hmm. if it was re- like Mick directed Foster? by like Peter Jackson back then oh. or Sam Raimi yeah. back then, this would have been a completely different movie. Yeah. Oh, I completely agree. But you know, in steps in what is actually supposed to be our hero, which is Kirsty Cotton played by Ashley Lawrence. Mm-hmm. And I feel like she's not always remembered in the pantheon of final girls so much as like Laurie yeah. Strode, you know, or Heather Thompson. She just happens to be kind of be there, right? She's kind of like in, in every girl. Yeah. I mean, she's, she's there. She's followed her father to wherever they've moved to either England or new England. Right. Even she's not sure. We're given a little bit of information, you know, uh, I don't, I think she's kind of ambivalent to the marriage situation. Mm-hmm. Right. But that she is kind of independent. Yeah. You know, uh, like her dad's still trying to coddle her, but she's saying like, no, I, I'm on my own now. That's right. I have got my own room and I have a job in a pet store, daddy. Yeah. But she's still calling him daddy. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess, you know, a lot of people do, but um, she's she's more independent now, and but she's feeling pretty protected, just like her dad's protective of her. Yes, you know, and so that kind of kicks off the conflict in this, right? Obviously, there's a supernatural thing that's happening here, very organically, but she's there to protect her father from adultery and then later murder, you know, and then it just kind of goes off the rails purposefully. And I mean, once she does figure out like the supernatural component to the story, I mean, she really tries to like, she doesn't back down from any of it. You know what I mean? Like she, she bargains with them immediately. Like she does hold her own in really good final girl fashion. I feel, but it's really interesting that we're talking about this because, you know, I I didn't really think of this in comparison to some of the other horror films of that era, certainly the eighties. Um, you know, but this really is a story about women. Yes. I mean, I would agree too. I, I, I'm, in a way that like Scream isn't or even Nightmare on Elm Street isn't, right? No, I mean, they have central female characters, but this this entire story is sort of female driven on both the ends of Julia and Kirstie, like yeah. two, two separate sides of, of women in this like familiar area. Definitely. Um, but that also brings us to her father, Larry Cotton, who's played by Andrew Robinson, who I feel like I've seen in lots of things. But when I look at his filmography, I'm like, I haven't seen any of these movies. Yeah, I don't know. And then like Sean Chapman as Frank Cotton, his I guess his brother. They don't yeah. look anything alike. No. Uh, I think they dubbed him over in the first movie because uh, he was British. Yeah. And they dubbed him over later because they changed the setting. Mm-hmm. But then it's his own voice in the second one. 
Yeah. But doing an American accent. So I don't even, I don't even. Yeah. I mean like that. So they'd redub, but they didn't get the actor back because they probably didn't even ask him if he could do an American accent, which he could. And I feel like when they decided to make that location change, a lot of it was done post-production, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. Pick up and whatnot. So Yeah. And knowing how fly by night it was, like that ending effects, like famously, were done, was done like in twenty four hours. Shit. He found like some some Greek guy off the street and like like got drunk and like they did the effects overnight, like hand painted them, like <laughs> <laughs> right. So like the American dub was probably done by like you know Max from accounting or something, you know. <laughs> no, Max from accounting and Karen from finance, please come in and say these lines. <laughs> I mean, there's even some parts in the movie where she brings she brings one guy home and he's an American, right? By by sound and then the next one is plainly british or something or maybe vice versa and i'm like how many british people live in new england or how many people were dubbed i don't i don't understand but anyway you know i do want to kind of see uh, because it was filmed like the whole naked one like uh, it kind of reminds me of the under the skin bit oh yeah you know where the the male body is like gazed upon and the male body is victimized yeah but i feel like some of the guys that she brought home are kind of dumpy and i don't know if i want to see that yeah Man, I mean, it's still a nude murder scene is better than a clothed murder scene. Always. Yeah. And forever. <laughs> uh, what do you feel about uh, Sean as, as Frank Cotton, aside from the, the voice dub? I mean, he, the voice dub really is not really helping him out. No. At all. It's just like, you don't, he's got this like really deep kind of like straight voice that's not really matching his face. Mm-hmm. It's a lot better in the second movie. Yeah, for I agree. him. You know, but yeah, I, I think this is overall a serviceable cast. I can't really say much to them. They didn't really do much heavy lifting other than just like saying the lines and doing the thing. You That's know right. I mean? I mean, they're just there to sort of like push the story along. Really, it's about Claire Higgins' performance, you know, and Ashley yes. Lawrence and maybe Andrew Robinson. Um, and obviously the huge standout being Doug fucking Bradley. Hell yes. As Pinhead. I mean, it didn't take much to make him an iconic horror villain. No. Really. Well, it took a lot, obviously, because it's like six hours of makeup, right? Well, I mean, he's not in the movie all that much. He's not. Famously. Like, he's, yeah. he's people expect this whole story to revolve around Pinhead, but he is literally just there as, as like, a function of what's happening. That's it. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, the times that he is on screen, Doug Bradley really does, like, like sink his teeth into that. It seems like he's enjoying it and doing it a, a good job, you know? He yeah. makes it scary and, like, theological at the same time, right? Yeah, there used to be this, like, anecdote about how he was actually, like, working as a technician. Like, he's an actor, but he was, like, working as a technician okay. on the movie. And they were like, hey, uh, the person we were going to have do this, like, we we haven't really filled it. Like someone dropped out. Hey, could you like step in and see how you do in the makeup? You know, I don't know how true that is. I know that he had been an acting, at least stage acting uh, 10 years prior and done done some other things. But when you see him, especially in the second movie or in real life, he does not look like an obvious guy. He's got big giant ears, you know, and he's just like, look at He looks like average McPlain rap, like British guy with big ears. He looks like someone's British uncle. And you don't even notice his ears when he's pinhead because he's got all the fucking pins coming out. That's right. He's got all the pins in his head and he's wearing that like black robe with all the cuts around his nipples. He looks strangely ageless as pinhead. Like he, Mm -hmm. he, 10 years later, he looks exactly the same as he did from the first movie. Because I mean, it's amazing what makeup effects can do. Really? Those contacts are doing a lot of heavy lifting because he's got like these bright blue eyes in reality but it's like super dark but anyway more about him later um what what were some of your thoughts just casually watching this and going through it um well honestly the the thing that really bothers me the most about this movie right is that the the box is supposed to be 
sort of like unsolvable. They they make it sound like it's a challenge, right? Like you're sitting there, he's all sweaty. And maybe because I've read the book too, that it's supposed to be difficult to solve this box. Oh, I, I never got that. Well, I, the movie doesn't make it seem that way. It seems like you pick it up, turn it over a couple times and run your thumb around the circle and bam, you got Cinnabite. It depends on who's using it. Like I, I figure like they got the puzzle girl from the second movie, but yeah, you know, we're going to cover that next week. But I mean, I, I always felt like it was like a tool. Like it's not difficult or easy. It's just, you have to know how to use it. Right. I mean, and that could be the case. I just, I feel like if if they have to find someone special to solve the box, like then it should be difficult, you know? I feel like in her case, like it's, it's trial and error. Like it opens this way, like this, where it's not a cube anymore, then it opens hell and she puts it back. Then it's not. I mean, it seems like Kiersey just does it super fast. But sometimes she just like shakes it and points at people and then like, (laughs) I mean, she's sitting in the hospital and she picks it up and she turns it over three times and then the walls are coming apart. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's not. Yeah. Throughout these films, it is not consistent whatsoever and sometimes like it just opens the doors and the doors are like i feel like the first few films the doors to whatever other dimension this is are just like cutting into our reality like the wall the wallpaper just like splits apart you know where the brick comes apart kind of organically you know but in some scenes the chains actually like come out of the box itself right uh in later movies like sometimes they say like the portal is in the box itself and so like they make giant versions of it like but then the small box can do the same thing like it doesn't it doesn't make sense and we shouldn't think about it (laughs) and i try not to it's just that like they spend a lot of time in the novella talking about the box right and it's like the way it looks and the way it feels and they talk about how it is difficult like it took frank a very long time to solve right and i kind of like the idea of that like you have to work for this right if you really want it you have to work for it and the thing that bothers me in this movie is that people pick it up and it seems like five seconds later they've solved it right and maybe there could be some passages of time things that i missed in the movie there's some editing issues all throughout this series yeah and you know even though this is the best rated film it doesn't have it's not immune to that right i always felt like yes it's a puzzle box but like the more you know about it the it's like a tool the easier it is to use like trial and error but also i feel like the the hard part is obtaining the thing not necessarily using it yeah because he does i mean and we, we don't get to see a lot of that in this movie but you know that you have to seek out the person to purchase this box you can't just like find it at the local supermarket or, or you know show up in some ruins of some unknown country you know yeah. like like doug bradley's character did apparently at the beginning of the next movie that we're going to talk about you know you never know what's going to pop up and this and also in the second one there's multiple boxes that's right. right so we don't know if those were fakes that he had found or if one of them was real but it's alluded that I don't want to talk too much about that next movie, but it's, I know it's like, it's alluded that um, he was waiting for that box and that's the thing that catalyzed the story, but he already had to. So like, it doesn't make sense. Anyway, I know. Whatever. I mean, a lot I of digress. it doesn't make a lot of sense, but I mean, that that's like the overarching thought that I have to this is that like everything else is so like in your face and easy to understand. Um, but the box itself, like is, is sort of a puzzle to me, if you will. I'm like, come on. <laughs> yeah, well. yeah. <laughs> make it make sense. I mean, like we could get into like soft and hard magic system and stuff like that like that's the thing in literature but this is a physical object that does something specific right it's like there should it should follow some rules and the writers directors they don't really give a shit as long as it's just like a catalyst you know it's it's you know whatever george lucas steven spielberg used to call their objects for their movies the MacGuffin. a MacGuffin. okay yeah which is something that like hitchcock talked about a lot you know 
so, but yeah, I mean like the box is it, every time I watch the movie, it's, it's like my main focus for some reason. But what I'm focused on is it's beautiful design because I, there's a lot of design that went into this. Obviously there's a lot of iconic imagery in this that spawned an entire franchise for a reason, right? I don't think he really envisioned a huge franchise from this, right? I think that it's the design that really makes it just leap off the screen and that's pinhead and that's this fucking box and the box is iconic. And and yeah, and those are the two things that really created a franchise for this. I feel like if if they didn't put enough thought into both the Cenobites, Pinhead especially, and that box and creating some sort of lore around it, there wouldn't be a franchise. This would be a one-off movie. Yeah. So well, zooming back into the movie itself, um, we've already talked about the location confusion. Let's talk about that iconic resurrection scene. Oh my god! Yes. My god! The, the first of all, Christopher Young's iconic score, the resurrection waltz. I don't know how much was taken by that original band. I know he took some some cues, but knowing his later work, you know, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Um, you know, I want to give most of the credit to him, but just like everything was working for some of these key scenes here, um, just beautifully constructed, and this was nasty. Yes watching this thing like kind of rebuild itself reverse style like you know organs coming together and skin and slime and blood and pus and everything else just like building something over like this beautiful kind of you know waltz music is like nothing i I haven't seen really anything quite before or since no I, i i feel like the music is really working for this movie in, in many, many places, but especially that particular moment. And you're right, it is nasty. There's so many like gross-out moments throughout this franchise of movies, right? But the first one, I feel like, is kind of gross like f- through mo- through a lot of it, right? Like, yeah. I was... I think I was eating. I think I was eating ice cream when I was watching, and I had to put it down. I was just like, "No, no, it's very a little rare." Because the camera lingers, and it looks yeah. good because it's all in camera. And I feel like these effects really stand like stand up today. That's not all of the in camera effects do, and that's the next scene that we're going to talk about as well. You know, my favorite part of that resurrection scene, though, is when like it finally has its arms formed and the spinal cord is formed and it like bends down and connects to the brain that's forming separate from it. Yeah. It's just so fucking neat and gnarly and just disgusting. And I love it. And it's all just like James Cameron-esque reverse photography. Like, oh, my God. And it's just done so well. And, you know, and they've got it melting and then they've got it collapsing in certain ways so that when they reverse it and all these different constructed shots, it looks like it's being built and coming together and forming kind of magically. And since it's all photographed rather than like animated or computer generated or anything like that, because let's face it, this is 1987. Mm-hmm. You know, it still looks good. And there's a reason because it's all actually fucking filmed. And I just, I think it's neat. Like I, parts of it, I rewound and watched again because it was good. Yeah. My favorite, like this was like the hands down, like scene that you will like talk about in pop culture. For me, like the best constructed scene was actually the, the original reveal for Pinhead versus that resurrection of Frank. And that this is in the asylum and Kirsty is like seeing it all happen. She solved the box. She brought the box with her mm-hmm. or they brought the box to her in the asylum, apparently. And they're like, this will jog your memory. This will jog your memory. Yeah. <laughs> and so she solves it and she's in this, like this cell essentially, right? Where there's like white tile. So uh, it all just like turns black. Mm-hmm. And then it's backlit from behind the steam coming out through the grout lines and that tile. And at the same time, there's a music cue that's just that. It's just like really foreboding. 
And then she starts hearing the noises, and then like her uh, her drip or whatever in the bag, the hospital drip, mm-hmm. starts just like turns into blood and explodes. Like all kinds of shit is happening. And then we get that iconic pinhead reveal, you know, where you know he'll tear your soul apart, demons to some, angels to others, you know, all that stuff that is so iconic and it's such a great reveal scene. It's like the standout scene for me outside of that resurrection waltz in this movie. I mean, I have to agree. I mean, I really like that. I wish that they would have used that as the first time we see the Cenobites in the movie. Cause I mean, we briefly see them in the very beginning after they've ripped apart Frank's body. Yes. They don't say anything. They're yeah. We see like around. lights behind the floorboards and the walls and stuff, but it's not quite the same. It doesn't hit the same way. No, it doesn't. As the hospital. I mean, I mean, we see one like putting the pieces of his face back together. So obviously they like puzzles too, but I mean, and that's it. I wish that we would have just seen sort of Frank die and then have this be the moment where we first get to see all of them. I mean, cause yeah. I, I feel like it's a, much better introduction and a lot more shocking right when he finally gets to to say things yes uh what do you think about the other cenobites i love it when like the the other cenobites just seem like equals they don't seem like they're followers to me they seem like like he is basically the mouth of them he's the voice of them but speaks for them like they seem like a group to me you know, they, they all seem like they're part of some sort of like monastic religion or something, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And that's what Cenobites really means, right? And so, um, you know, I love that one of them just like goes straight to Christy, to Kirsty. There's no struggle. He just puts her fingers right in its mouth. That's right. <laughs> just like- it just like shoves its two fingers in her mouth. Like it's just like every day, this is what I do for a living. And that's what... <laughs> what he does do for a living yeah that was the chattery one right he like just storms up to her and like yeah like you might be a grocery bagger here but in hell you're like put sticking fingers in people's mouths to shut them up (laughs) don't pay attention to my day job by night (laughs) yeah i really like these cenobites in this movie (laughs) gloved or gloveless (laughs) how about one of each Uh, the the chatterer who's got its face pulled back and his teeth are like constantly moving right, and then we have one called Butterball. Yeah, the one with the the matrix glasses on. <laughs> yeah, he's got the matrix glasses, constantly licking his lips and shit. And then we have Lady Cenobite with her throat pulled back, open vagina style. I wonder if this actually kind of inspired the Matrix a little bit. In a way, the Matrix are people are from another dimension coming into this world. You know, that's true. They're all wearing the same costumes. I mean, they have a Cenobite acidic. <laughs> and Morpheus does chatter a lot. <laughs> if only someone got their fingers stuck in someone's <laughs> mouth. I don't know. But yeah, no, I think that scene is really good. And like, we really get an idea of who Pinhead is and who these Cenobites are really, right? Where they come from. Yeah. And it's one of the only times in the movie that they really start to talk about, you know, the, the distinctions between like pleasure and pain and, and maybe not being able to differentiate between the two of them. Yeah. I feel like it's sort of discussed briefly in the movie, but not really talked about. They're really much more like gray area here. Much later in the series, they start getting more and more satanic yeah. in their nature, especially with the third one. Mm-hmm. But it's really not about hell. Not in this one. No. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily, they don't have to come from hell. They just come from somewhere else. Or know? arguably even the second one, even though they mention hell a bunch of times, this is my personal hell or, you know, that's oh, yeah, yeah. this hell, you know? But yeah, no, I mean, I think Cenobites are great and I, I feel like, and I, we get to see more of them later on in the, in the franchise. And I, I, but I think in this one, they're used like just enough, just enough to make them memorable. No, it's the perfect amount. Julia. Is a great villain. 
She she really fucking is, though. It sets her up, you know. I, she kind of ends very quickly in this, you know, but it sets her up for that next one where we really, really get to see Julia as a villain. And it's just delicious. I mean, I do like her as a villain in this movie, too, because I think she she comes into her villainous on in her own, in her own time throughout the movie, too. She seems kind of meek and unhappy in the beginning, like we talked about earlier. But by the end of this, like she is like reveling in the fact that her husband has been murdered and her lover is wearing his skin. You know what I mean? She didn't want to sleep with her husband, but she sure as hell is sleeping with someone wearing his skin. You know? Yeah. I wasn't clear on whether Frank actually got his skin back and was just wearing that to fool Kirsty or to like to hide from the Cenobites. Well, no, I think that I, I think he wasn't fully regenerated and he had the opportunity to put that skin on. Yeah. So and then I'm because I feel like he thought he was just like one or two. <laughs> That's another thing. Christy comes in there. He's like bleeding at the temples and the ears everywhere where the seams of the skin are. And he's like, I'm fine. And she's like, OK, everything's normal. <laughs> Can I just see the body, though? <laughs> yeah. That's when, like, the script is a slave to what's being portrayed on screen and it's, or vice versa. And it's, you know, they need to do some adjustments. <laughs> I mean, I really don't. I mean, I realize that that Frank is also a villain in this movie, but. I think Julia is a much better villain because she's doing most of the Frank is Frank, you know, like Frank is just, uh, you know, he's just a horny skinless man. Yeah. (laughs) Who wants to fuck his niece? Yeah. You know, I mean, he wants to fuck everything. Really? Honestly. I I mean, like in the, in the book, he's real fucking horny. You know that. Well, like I keep mentioning the second film because it literally starts off the second this one ends, mm-hmm. right? So you could really watch these two as one long movie if you wanted to. That's right. And that's they, kind of how I view them. They do have a, like an extended flashback sequence, but yeah, the beginning, like a very needless, like 10 minute, like exposition. Like, I guess people didn't have streaming back then, obviously, <laughs> you know, they couldn't pick it up. Maybe the VHS rentals were like, you know, a little thin on the ground. So they had to remind everyone that the first movie existed, that's you know, right. but and here's what happened. These days you'd never see that. No. And if you did, it'd be a lot more brief. Yeah. So, uh, well, I've kind of been skirting around it a little bit, but do you want to talk about the original material, The Hellbound Heart, for a second? Please. So, I mean, it's written by Clive Barker, who's one of our most important gays, right? At least in the artistic writing community, mayhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, his work is kind of prolific at this point. He's written lots and lots of things, and, and lots of movies have been made about his work. Some good, some just trashy. But The Hellbound Heart, the novel novella is, I mean, it's kind of, it's different in many ways from the movie. Like most glaringly Kirstie in that book is not Larry's daughter. His name's not Larry in that either, but she's like sort of a family friend who's in love with him and jealous of Julia. Right. But she hangs out with them just to be around Larry. Right. And she makes no, like qualms about wanting to be with him. And so it's so, a little more naughty. It's a little yeah. less Reagan's America. Yes. <laughs> and so, but she does want to save him from everything that's going on. So she does become sort of the heroine of that novella, trying to, to save this man from what's going on. You know, there's still a skinless corpse living up in the attic and Julia is still bringing men home to let him feed off of. But yeah. And I know this is this is written by Clive Barker on both sides, but I wonder how much he decided to kind of tone that down versus the studio. 
I'm not sure. I mean, it's, I don't feel like Clark Barker would have done a lot of changes to his source work. Cause I mean, he, like we said earlier, he didn't like some of the film adaptations of his, his novels and he wanted to do one of his own mm -hmm. and he still made some changes. I think that the changes that he makes work, I think that making Kirstie the daughter instead of some like quasi love interest works for yes. this movie. It provides some sort of like, it's just strange because he wrote it literally right before filming it. And then literally like the next year, the sequel was already out, you know, it's like all all of this is within like a year and a half. I was like, why would he change it right after writing it? You know what I mean? I mean, it's true, but I feel like the sequel came out because, because money, you know, like when things become popular and make money, of course they're going to have a sequel. And who knew, like he could have been holding on to that manuscript or whatever for years. It might not have it just, it might have just been published in 1986. It's true. And, and you know, to get people maybe excited about the movie coming out. I, don't know. I think that it was included in like a, a like a volume of short horror novels. And then oh, okay. he later published it on its own. Um, but I think that may have come after the, the film even. So this could have just been in some sort of like tome that you had to find, mm -hmm. but the novel itself talks more about the sadomasochistic qualities of everything that's going on. Right. Yeah. And the Cenobites talk more about like providing pleasure and saying that like, yes, we're going to give you the pleasure that you want. It just may not be the definition of pleasure that you have. Right. So it, there's a lot more of a, be careful what you wish for kind of aspect to it. Yeah. You know, which I like, I like that better. I wish that this movie would have had a lot more to say about like reaching the end of like a sexual addiction or something like that and trying to find something to make yourself a little more excited. Yeah. Like the kind of like a slippery slope, be careful what you wish for type of thing. And it's hard to articulate that. Right. Cause I don't even really understand it. I'm not, I've never been into or experienced BDSM or anything like that. And I, I know that some people really get kicks out, you know, out of like getting like hooks in their skin and hanging and, you know, or, uh, fucking David Carradine themselves or, <laughs> I mean, and I mean, we don't, we don't kink shame, obviously. I no. mean, like if, if it gets you off, it gets you off and there's, there's nothing wrong with that, you know? I, but I feel like if you're going to have a movie that's sort of like based upon that, like seeking out new experiences, like spend a little bit more time talking about it. I also realize it's 1987. Yeah. I feel like, you know, like they had cruising, maybe they, <laughs> maybe yeah. they watched that first time <laughs> and they're like, well, we can't go that direction. Let's tone it down just a little bit bit you know i feel like you know moving forward we might have a little bit more of that conversation in any hellraiser movies that come after yeah so but yeah it's a good novella it's a quick read i think you can listen to it in like three hours it's totally oh, okay. worth it okay but it's a lot more british like it's a very british novella <laughs> okay so, yeah. well i mean like obviously it has a lot to do with sex uh pleasure pain you know the blurred lines between those at their at both of their heights and uh, there's a continuing theme in all of these movies that starts off with this one about adultery and death, right? We see it again and again and again in this franchise, um, specifically this one and the next one, Betrayal. And we see it, and I've forgotten what the third one, you watched it recently and I haven't. With the fourth one, again, there's a there's an adultery theme and things like that. And I'm wondering uh, what he has to say about unhappy marriages or having those kinks and, and having to something that you still need to be fulfilled in, you know, and then that resulting in kind of a debaucherous or letting yourself indulge too much and ending in, you know, pain, death, discomfort. I mean, yeah, I, I feel like adultery in, in horror movies, especially is one of those like sins that get you killed for, you know what I mean? It's equivalent to like just 
teenagers having sex and doing drugs. It's almost as if he's saying adultery is one of those kinks that's kind of an indulgence. I mean, I'm sure that's true. I mean, perhaps like the thrill of getting caught, you know, or the thrill of doing something that you know is completely wrong. You know, I will say that like when, when Julia first had sex with Frank, she wasn't married yet. Right. But they were fucking having sex on her wedding dress. You know what I mean? And so Mm -hmm. like he really drives that adultery theme like home visually, especially in that moment. But, um, I don't, I mean, like the death part that goes with it, you're right. It does follow for the rest of the franchise. Like if someone is committing adultery, like there's death to follow for sure. Oh yeah. And as far as like Frank goes, it's more of an adult message than, than some of the others that were happening in the eighties that were seemingly moral messages, whether conscious or not about premarital sex or, you know. Well, and I think that's what separates this from a lot of 80s movies. I think in the 80s, people were spending a lot of time in horror movies talking about like what children are doing or teenagers are doing and Mm -hmm. trying to send a moral message their way. This is adult horror. And this is adult horror. You know, this is adult body horror about the choices that you make being an adult, you know, and and what, what the consequences would be for you as an adult. Right. There's also religious or cult overtones with that. And I'm wondering what the connection or the Venn diagram is that he would say with that. Maybe that at its height of organization, that it might be more of a religious experience. Like you're experiencing God with this, this level of pain and pleasure. Because obviously like he, he's come up with this concept of the Cenobites as a communal order uh, that seemingly worship pain itself. And later in the second one, uh, the Leviathan God of the labyrinth, um, rather than any kind of obvious satanic figure, almost Lovecraftian. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like there's some connective tissue here with stories like in the mouth of madness or event horizon. And mayhaps they should have just cast Sam Neill. <laughs> <laughs> Cause he's in both of those. Uh, I can see, I think it's funny that we have a gay man writing this, right? At a time when there was lots of religious persecution to to gay men and AIDS, right? The religious right was constantly having something to say about the way that gay men were having sex and leading their own lives. Certainly in the second half of the 80s, yeah. Because we see cruising as kind of like a midpoint where it was like, in the late 70s and early 80s, it's going to be more and more and more okay to be gay and talk about it and show it on film. And then like AIDS happened and it was you know, 83, 84, 85. And then after that, it was just like, you know... Reagan's bullshit, you know? Yes. And so I think that this is like, I think this is Barker's answer to that. Really. He's taking, you know, a religious order saying that sex is bad and he's creating one that says sex is good and deviant kinds of sex is good. Right. Uh, These people are there to show you pleasure. And like they said earlier, it may not be the pleasure that you want, but we'll, we'll give it to you. And I think it's just a really nice, like juxtaposed look at what was actually going on in 1987 and what's going on in this movie. Mm -hmm. I mean, this movie is sex positive sort of, you know, but yeah, in a weird way. Yeah, in a, in a really weird, Roundabout. twisty way. Yeah. You know, but I... It's not making any moral judgments. At all. I mean... Which it, is interesting for showing demons that prey upon the people that are looking for that, but they're still not making a judgment. It's a fine line to walk, and they achieved it. And I I mean, I I don't see them as demons. I mean, he says that we're demons to summon angels to other, but we're none of those things. We're just explorers, mm-hmm. you know? Come to show you what we found. And I just, I, I think that it's, it's really neat. I, I will say that I think a lot of people view sex as maybe a religious experience or it's like the height of like experience itself. Right. And if you just grow tired of everything that you get, I, I don't think it's unfounded for someone to seek something out to recapture that kind of experience. Yeah. 
No, I, com- I completely agree. And it's these types of conversations and ideas that are just below the surface in this movie that make it so successful and so different than anything that came out around it and still so different today. Yes, I agree. I think this movie holds up very, very well. And I think that there's a lot of things going on in this movie. I think that there's a lot of things that it's saying. And you can get those things on multiple watches. I feel that people haven't even sort of scratched the surface of talking about what this movie can be about. Yeah. And that said, it's not a perfect movie. I no. mean, it's, we're not blowing it's, you know, <laughs> we're not blowing the D. <laughs> no, Julia's doing that. Julia's doing that. Um, you know, it, there's a lot of editing issues. There's like production design issues and stuff like that. But at its height, this is very special and retain and remains to be special. Agreed. So um, I want to talk about a little bit of the creation of those icons like Pinhead, the Lament configuration, which is the actual name of the puzzle box, right? Mm-hmm. So like we talked a little bit about this in the 80s, like Pinhead versus like Freddy versus Jason, like creating those icons to sit up against each other. Um, it's like stoicism versus comedy or intelligence versus like force of nature in like Michael Myers or Jason comedy being like Freddy. And so they're tapping into like um, Christopher Lee's Dracula or even Hannibal Lecter in Pinhead here. And that's what really I think they wanted to do with some of these Cenobites was to make kind of an ambivalent, um, you know, organizer of a uh, or priest even of a bad guy, you know, someone that doesn't really care and is kind of doing a job, but has nothing nothing to say about like they don't have a skin in the game you know no. there's no moral judgment here they're not punishing anyone you know other than maybe like their their cop like role of going like pulling people back into hell to try and cheat their situation you know but um i i, I, th- I thought that was an interesting juxtaposition compared to the other you know, 80s icons that were being set up at the time. Yeah, no, I agree. Because you have people like Jason and Michael Myers who say nothing at all, right? And then you get the other opposite of that, which is Freddy, who doesn't shut the fuck up ever, yeah. right? And so, like, you I have... Got a time, bitch. <laughs> I mean, he's got something quippy to say all the time. And you have sort of Pinhead in the middle. And I think he chooses his words carefully. And I feel like... Very eloquent. Yeah. The Garden of Eden. Yes. <laughs> I mean, he, he has something very... Uh, poetic to say all the time about what he's doing yeah. right i will say that in in later movies he does sometimes get a little quippy but he will always find himself like sort of sermonizing what's going on we are explorers of the physical experience you exactly. know like he's yeah he's a little bit elevated there i mean like freddie would never say anything like that yeah. i think this is what makes... freddie would gag before he... <laughs> <laughs> he would choke on those words <laughs> But uh, I feel like this is what separates Pinhead from the rest of them, like you said, right? Creating an icon in that. And I mean, he's like the adult in the room. Right. I mean, and he's like, I really like that. I mean, he shows up because people want him to. And he's like, well, you called us. We came, you know, like now you have to deal with it. You called. We came. And here it is. As eloquent and elevated as he is, he is straight to the point. Yeah. You know, I mean, I like him. Now, Doug Bradley revealed in an interview uh, that he asked Clyde Barker, how he should play Pinhead. And Barker told him to think of him as a cross between an administrator and a surgeon who is responsible for running a hospital where there are no wards, only operating theaters, as well as being the man who wields the knife. And he's the man who has to keep the timetable going. Jesus Christ. Yeah. And he went on to say a line from one of Clive's plays swam into my mind as I was playing this character. I am in mourning for my humanity. At this point, there was no backstory for the character, but I discussed this with Clive and we had agreed that he had been once human, 
But whether this was yesterday, last week, last year, 10, 100, or 1,000 years ago, I didn't know. I didn't need to know. Sufficient to have that idea logged into my brain. A perpetual, unconscious grieving for the man he had once been, for a life and a face he couldn't even remember, and a frozen grief. I felt now that Pinhead existed in an emotional limbo where neither pain nor pleasure could touch him. A pretty good definition of hell for me. That's pretty fucking eloquent, too. Yeah, Dave I mean, Bradley, are you actually Pinhead? Look at this. Oh put a lot of thought into that character who was on screen for 15 minutes in this movie or less. Yeah. But, I mean, that's good. I mean, he, he seems like a well-trained actor. And I will say about Clive Barker's writing, he's very... He's very flowery, right? He has a Dickensian proclivity. Oh. When he writes, he's not he's not like Stephen King. And Stephen King also has a proclivity, you know, that he, he writes well. But Clive Barker writes in a more poetic sense maybe mm. because he's British. Oh, maybe. But, I mean, like, just reading that sounds like something that Clive Barker would have written. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It makes sense that they would come up with that backstory. I only got one more note here, and it's about the Lament configuration. Obviously, the infamous six-sided puzzle box. It was conceived and designed by Simon Says. Wait. <laughs> Simon Says. Simon Says. <laughs> I'm not sure who that is, but I want to find out. Simon Versace. Simon Versace. Some of you have not pronounced it Versace, and it shows. <laughs> so I know we're like starting to come up at time, but I really want to talk about the music for a second. We have to. We have to. So Barker originally wanted the electronic music group Coil, as you mentioned, to perform the music for the film, but that notion was rejected by the production company New World. So editor Tony Randall then suggested Christopher Young as a replacement for Coil in the film's score. Christopher Young had already done several horror films, such as The Power and A Nightmare on Elm Street 2. So amongst a veritable slew of drama, action, and thriller films, he would go on to be extremely prolific in the horror genre specifically. And I think he was like a runner-up to our top composers when we were doing that. And I think the score specifically for Hellraiser and, and that waltz was, I think, may have been in both of our top tens. It was. Right, and so uh, some of those horror films that he's done, or horror adjacent films, would have been uh, obviously Hellraiser Two. Following up with this, The Fly Two, Species, Virtuosity, Copycat, our very first, uh, Urban Legend, The Gift, which I think we did a bonus episode on recently, uh, The Exorcism of Emily Rose, uh, The Grudge Two, Drag Me to Hell, which is possibly the greatest. Like, if you're going to look up a horror score in a dictionary, that's what plays. Right, so good. Sinister and the new Pet Cemetery and The Empty Man, which I, I really love. Very underrated score. I didn't realize he did The Empty yeah. Man. Yeah. He has a really good, like, ancient uh, woodwind sound that he does with, like, the Cthulian stuff in The Empty Man that reminds me of the kind of stuff that he was doing for the Leviathan and in um, Hellraiser 2 and some of, like, the, the quick uh, brass hits or things like you would do for the Cenobites in this movie. So he is capable of a huge amount of range. And just looking at his, how prolific he is in the genre, I almost want to go back and say, you know, just on like the stuff that he's done alone, you know, outside of the biggest hits by like Jerry Goldsmith or something like that. Like, I feel like not only a runner up, but he deserves like a tie or something. I don't know at the very least, but 
I would say, I mean, at this point, because I didn't realize that he did some of these movies, and I really like it when a composer will sort of niche themselves to a genre of film, mm-hmm. right? I, and because it gets them, you know, really into it. I want to go back and like listen to some. Oh, of these I only picked out these. He's done like fifty more like thrillers and and dramas and things like that that you would know. Oh my god, I love it. Yeah, there's a huge. He is a hugely prolific, um, but he's not scared of horror movies, and will keep coming back to them. Mm-hmm. And that's something I love. But if you're interested, the score that Coil recorded. Uh, which is a total of nine tracks can be found on their compilation CD entitled unnatural history Two: smiling in the face of perversity. <laughs> what a good title. <laughs> I don't know if that's on streaming or not. I'm going to have to look it up and listen to it because I just created these notes before recording and I have not had the chance to listen to that, but I am interested to see. I, it's got to be somewhere on YouTube because Clive Barker said it like it, he chose them because they like moved his bowels or something like, God. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> So I don't know in what way. Like, I pain, mean, pleasure. In what way? Clive I mean, Barker. He's a gay man, so it could be many, many ways. Kind of a Barker. Uh, I think that we're doing this deep dive at just the right time because there is another sort of remake reboot coming out this year. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. On Hulu. Yeah, I believe that's a movie. Uh, there was some argument between us or question between us whether that was going to be a series or a movie, but I believe it's a movie. It could quite possibly be. I haven't, because we talked about it as a news item on a Shooting the Flames episode, and I just, it was so long ago when they announced this, and it's finally coming to fruition, but <clears throat> it's listed on IMDb, so it could be a, a film, but I know they also list TV series. I mean, Hulu at this point, they really have a good stake in the game for for film as well. Wikipedia references that as a film. Okay, we should go with film. Um, and I know that they chose film directors and writers to do it. Okay. And that it was finished shooting in like six seven, six weeks or so. And that's not no, something. That's not like a TV series. No. Yeah. So, but I think we're both legitimately excited for this year's uh, remake. Yeah. That. So rarely excited for a remake because the film was directed by um, David Bruckner with a screenplay by Ben Collins and Luke uh, Piotrowski with a story by David Goyer, who's done a shit ton of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, big stuff. And also that exact team was behind 2021's The Night House, which appeared on both of our top tens this year, very high. Yeah, very, very Number one or number twos, right? And so we're very excited about this team. And on top of that, uh, Clive Barker is returning to produce. Um, And interestingly, I think we reported early on like a Shooting the Flames when we were talking about this, that the drag queen Gottmik might be playing uh, Pinhead uh, based on her competition makeup. However, this is not true. Pinhead will actually be played by Jamie Clayton, a trans woman, uh, perhaps best known for her work in the Wachowskis Netflix series Sense8 or Sense8, however you say it. Um, But I really loved her in that series, and I think she's going to do great, and I am super excited about this whole team, and they're going to try and do it much closer to the Hellbound Heart. Which will make me very happy. Yeah, so it's going to be interesting, and that maybe, mayhaps that's why it's not getting a theatrical release, if they go heavily much more into the sexual aspect of it. I mean, I am very, very excited for this. I can't, I can't wait to watch it. And especially because, I mean, like watching, watching this to talk about now, and I haven't, I haven't seen the original Hellraiser maybe in like five or six years. So it hasn't been that long, but cause I come back to it frequently. 
but I really want something that's more, you know, close to the source material. And I am happy that Clive Barker is involved because he stopped being involved at some point in the franchise. And so if someone is there giving their like seal of approval to something, I think it's, it speaks very highly of what the, the work they've created. I don't know. Like the, the Clive Barker thing is probably the least of what I'm excited about because he did stick on for <laughs> executive production for a lot of these. Yeah. And most of them aren't good. <laughs> so I don't know. We'll see. He came back and he was actually planning to direct one himself. And then it just kind of exploded into this new thing. So I am happy that there's some trans inclusivity going on. Yeah. I, I feel like, yeah, at the same time, I'm a little worried about that. Um, just because like if they want to specifically show Penhead as like gender neutral or something, Jamie Clayton is not gender neutral. She is a woman, mm-hmm. you know? And so I don't want that to be exploitative, you know, at all of how trans may or may not look. Um, I tend to think that Jamie Clayton looks like a beautiful woman, but I don't know how they're going to do it. So either way, it's going to be like a pinhead type of character and they want it to be a little bit different, you know, and Jamie Clayton is a little bit different. And that's good. I mean, like differences is what makes a remake good. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. If you do it the exact same, they're usually pretty shitty. Yeah. All right. Do you have some fun facts for me? I do. Oh, yeah. I have three. So the film was originally supposed to be called The Hellbound Heart, obviously. After the novella upon which it was based, the studio decided that the title sounded too much like a romance and asked Clyde Barker to change it. So Barker offered Sadomasochist from Beyond the Grave. <laughs> which was rejected for the overtly sexual content. He ultimately opened the floor to the production team to offer up their own suggestions, prompting a 60 year old female crew member to offer up what a woman will do for a good fuck. (laughs) I mean, that one's a little on the nose, but a really good title. (laughs) Very specific. You almost don't have to watch the movie. Cause that's true. I think I was watching this and I, I sent, Chris a text and I was like, our synopsis should be British Meg Foster kills a series of neuters because she got some good dick. (laughs) That pretty much sums up the movie. Yep. (laughs) Although sadomasochists from beyond the grave. (laughs) Sounds delightful. Yeah. So one of them should be a subtitle. Yeah. (laughs) During a post-production party, when the filming ended, Doug Bradley was dismayed to be ignored by the other members of the crew. He thought he had gotten on rather well with the cast and crew. And it wasn't until later that he realized that none of the crew actually, actually had seen him without his makeup on so they didn't recognize him (laughs) that's good though i mean that's excellent makeup work so for the last fun fact when clive barker first showed the film to his mother she cried tears of joy upon seeing her son's name in the opening credits he leaned over and whispered that that would be the happiest she would be for the next two hours (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'd very much like to meet Clive Barker. Like if he ever goes to some sort of horror convention, I am there to yeah. like meet the man. Well, those were fun. Uh, but we have to ask some questions about Hellraiser. Like we do about every movie we deep dive into. And we're going to start with, if you had this puzzle box, would you open it? Mm, my, my, my gut was to say no. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not knowing what would come out of it. Yeah. If I want to like shove someone into a hell portal or something, you know, you know, otherwise they, they basically, the people that use the box, they, they turn you into some sort of Cenobite or whatever. And I, I don't know. I'm not Lord of pain. You know what I mean? Like, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> but no, in all seriousness, uh, were you scared while watching Hellraiser? Um, um, no. And I can't remember if I was the first time I watched it. I watched this very late in my horror Oh, I watched career. it very early. 
So I want to say no. I was about nine or 10 when I first saw this. Oof. So I was very, I wasn't, I was scared, but I was mostly grossed out. You know what I mean? Like this was one of the most adult things that I saw very early on in my horror career. Right. Cause I was watching things like dream warriors over and over again. And I'm at the video store. I haven't seen this and it's just pinhead on the front. So I had no idea there was going to be skinless corpses and things like that. And I didn't know that skin was going to be being ripped off of bodies. And so I was really taking a, taken aback as a child by this movie. Yeah. And I didn't watch it again until my late teenage years. I was so put off by Hellraiser the first time I saw it. Because <laughs> I was like 10. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is gross. Could you imagine watching like Hellraiser and then like the thing in the same night? It would just, just totally change your relationship with food for the rest of your life. I mean, for I mean, it did on this watch. I'm like eating ice cream. I'm like, no, no, I got to put this down. <laughs> like it's a little too squishy in my mouth right now. So I mean, like Clive Barker really does that well. He grosses you out. Yeah. This is really, really good body horror, in my opinion. It's just um, I just watched it way too early. Yeah, I found a, an appreciation much later on in life. So yeah, I probably didn't watch it until I was like twenty-five. <laughs> out of five stars, what would you rate Hellraiser? I gave it a four. I also gave it four stars. Yeah, I th- it's it's special. You know, it probably doesn't deserve that four on a technical level. You know, there's a lot of problems with it, active problems. Yeah, but they're also little and num- they're so little, but they're also very numerous. You know, um, but it's also just so special, and there's nothing quite like it. And I, I like the ideas and the discussion and the thoughts that it kind of engenders. I agree. And so I, I have to, I had to land on a four. And I feel like the whole is much better than the, those little problems. You know what I mean? And I, I feel like this is a different from, I just keep coming back to this. I keep feeling like this is different than exploitational horror. Uh, a lot of that that was going on in the eighties. And this is really about ideas and people are passionate about these things and telling and talking about these things. And they're ambitious versus trying to make a dollar or scare the shit out of people in an audience. This this is having to do with ideas versus feelings. And I feel like that's what really set it apart and still sets it apart. Well, and I think that moving forward from Hellraiser, I think you can see a definite line in like 80s horror. Early 80s horror is just to make money. It's cookie cutter stuff, right? A lot of it is. And and I, you know what? I, I don't want to shit on that stuff. No, it's good. It's not that they, they don't, don't have ideas that they're brain dead, you know, but it's it's just that they're different. Like this is adult horror. Yes. You know, and that's its differentiation. And I think that we see a lot more of that moving While forward. While still having an icon, ideas. which is True. so rare for an adult horror. I like it. I think it's a really good movie. And it's quick. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's over an hour and a half, but it flies by. Yeah. Like, the story has a good, like, sense of timing and pace. And I think it's just an enjoyable watch. You can very yeah. easily rewatch this one as well. It's a, it's a classic for a reason. Yeah. So finally, who's the hottest guy in Hellraiser? Frank. Frank. Yeah. Uncle Frank. Come yeah. to daddy. Definitely not her stupid boyfriend. No. He looked like a fucking Brady. <laughs> I don't. That part where he was like flipping the cigarette into his mouth at the table. And went Gee whiz. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, Kirstie. What was that? What was that spider demon or whatever? <laughs> Scorpion. <laughs> Scorpion baby monster. <laughs> <laughs> Which apparently is called the engineer. What? Yeah. I don't. It's on Wikipedia. Or the architect. No, the architect is something else. Okay. This is this one's called the engineer. Okay. I don't I don't know why. I don't know what it does. It seems like it's just crawling along a wall, but cares, whatever. Yeah. But yeah, Frank, I'm telling you. <laughs> I mean, when I was younger watching this, I mean clearly yeah. I was already a little Come to daddy. Okay, Zaddy. <laughs> when he was like sitting shirtless and sweaty in that row of candles, I'm like, I will come to daddy. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. 
Well, I think that just about wraps up our conversation on Hellraiser. We'd like to know what you think about the movie and our conversation. As always, you can find us over on social media at The Film Flamers on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com or you can call us at 972-666-7733. Come tear our hole apart. We have such sights to show you. Daddy. <laughs> Come to daddy. <laughs> Angels to some. <laughs> Dildos to others. <laughs> we'll hook you in the very beginning. Um, <clears throat> as Chris mentioned earlier, we are talking about Hellraiser 2 Hellbound next week. So stay tuned for that. That's right. And we had a poll over on patreon.com slash the film flamers for our patrons over there to choose which Hellraiser sequel we'll be talking about. That's right. And they have chosen Hellraiser Bloodline. That's right. The fourth entry. That's right. 1996. Which everyone hates but me. But they voted for, so. Overwhelmingly. You voted. (laughs) We recorded. (laughs) (laughs) Patrons to some. (laughs) (laughs) also guys we have not had a review in quite some time so head over to apple Podcasts or itunes and leave us a five-star review and why you like us and we're going to read that on shooting the flames that's right well chris i think it's time for me to go and tear my hole apart (laughs) i think you said soul no (laughs) dildos to others those others are me you want to go have some Sweet dreams. Which one does he talk about crying in? Oh, stop crying. The waste of perfectly good suffering. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to just have a conversation with Pinhead.